You're listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. At Southwide Baptist Church, our mission is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby lead people to worship God authentically, connect in biblical community, grow in Christian maturity, and multiply disciples and churches both locally and globally. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. Now let's join Pastor Jeremy for today's message. Me to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, and I'm going to try something this morning just to see how much you've been paying attention. We've tried this a little bit, but maybe, just maybe, you've memorized this verse by now. For a year and a half, we've been saying the same verse, so hopefully, John 20, 31, you ready? These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Alright? So can you say it with me? These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Alright, we're going to do that again next week. So you try it again when we get there next week and see if you've got it memorized. How many of you have heard or perhaps uttered the statement, that's not fair. Anybody? Okay. Most of us who are raising our hands are parents, and our children have said that. Um, especially those of us with a bunch of children, we hear it often. Um, I always kind of chuckle when my kids say that's not fair because uh, they don't decide what's fair in our house. I decide what's fair in our house, and so I remind them of that often. Uh, even when they say that's not fair, that they're not the judge and they don't get to make that decision. Uh, ask them, they'll tell you. That's often a conversation in our house. But there is a natural sense within them, within my children, your children, that screams for justice, that desires for justice to be served. And in their minds at the moment, the reason why they make the statement that's not fair is because they don't think justice is being served. But there is a natural sense, not just in them, it's also in us. When we say that's not fair, we are looking for justice. I had a conversation with someone just this week about the court system in America. They're going through a pretty ugly court battle right now and have been for a while. And some decisions were made this week that didn't seem right and maybe even considered by most highly unjust and the comment was made about the justice system that's not justice and to which I responded we don't have a justice system in America we have a legal system in America and most of you could echo that same statement Uh, we don't experience justice in many places around us perhaps in some very big ways justice is not served in our land sometimes we get it right Most often, not. That would be what we term fair. Justice is not always done in our land, and sometimes in some very ugly, unbiblical ways, and we might respond, that's not fair. 
Well, back to my conversation about my kids. What's interesting is that they're rarely interested in arguing for justice for somebody else. They're always pleading their own case. I bet your kids are the same way. Punish one child for wrongdoing and see if the other one cries out. That's not fair for them. Probably not going to happen. Most of the time, it's them arguing their own case. Not only that, but they almost always have a distorted sense of what really is fair and what isn't fair, and an inflated sense of what they really deserve. What they're saying is not, that's not fair. What they're saying is, that's not what I think I deserve. And little, how, little do they know how wrong they actually are. Let me ask you a question this morning. How many of us have at least thought about, if not actually said about our lives, it's not fair that I should have to go through this? Nothing I've done deserves what I'm having to face right now. But isn't it true that according to the Bible, we too have a distorted and even inflated sense of what fair is? Ask you a follow-up question. What if God gave you what you really deserve? In our text this morning, we are back at the Roman trial of Jesus, back in this public conversation. Remember, back and forth between public and private conversations. So we're back in the public conversation just outside the praetorium where the verdict on Jesus' crime is given. And the verdict is not guilty, but the sentence is condemned. So if you found your place, let me invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. So we begin together in chapter 18, right in the middle of verse 38, the second half, depending on how your Bible divides this paragraph here, starting with the word after in the ESV. The Bible says, after he had said this, that is, Pilate, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. Father, I pray that You would help us this morning to see rightly who we are before You. 
We have such a tendency to come before you and to measure our lives and our circumstances based on how much we think we deserve. And yet, if we were to only realize the truth of that, if we were to only realize what we do deserve, perhaps by Your mercy and grace, we would cry out this morning, Lord, help us. God, save us from ourselves. And so I do pray that as we are reminded of how much You've done for us this morning, that we would be overjoyed and full of worship. Hearts swelling with praise to You. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. And for the one here this morning who's never called upon You for salvation, I pray that today, before it's too late, that today would be the day of salvation. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. We all like a good justice story, right? We, we all like when the end turns out good. This is a great story of injustice. Where the guilty is set free while the innocent is charged. And convicted. And punished. And even killed. Unjustly. In modern sense, in a modern narrative, this execution would perhaps make headlines as one of those great injustices in the world, a great atrocity that should be righted because it was so very wrong and violent and scandalous. But such a headline in the first century that was such bad news actually turned out to be really, really good news. So let me ask you again, what if God gave you what you really deserve? We're back on the outside of the praetorium. The governor has come to this place to try Jesus. He's meeting the Jewish officials, leadership that's brought Jesus to him to be tried. Jesus is on trial before Pilate, who is at the time... The proconsul of Rome, a trial that is being forced by the Jewish authority. The charge against Jesus religiously was blasphemy. But Rome needed criminal charges. And so Israel conjured them up. The charge against Jesus religiously was blasphemy, but criminally it was insurrection. Namely, Jesus is making himself to be a king. And not only did the Jews believe that he was not the king of Israel, they were determined to convince Pilate that Jesus was trying to be the king of all things so that Pilate would see him as an insurrectionist and would put him to death. So Pilate, after meeting them, goes to his quarters and he begins to question Jesus privately. We were there last week dealing with this question, what is truth? But he returns from this conversation with Jesus to the public eye to give his judicial opinion publicly. That's what we find in verse 38, the middle of verse 38, that he went back outside to the Jews and told them, here's the opinion, the verdict, I find no guilt in him. Well, this is the moment, if you watch Judge Judy or anything else, this is the moment, right, when the whole courtroom erupts, Right? On the one hand, all the people that were against him are, are, are all up in arms and ready to, ready to do something else, find some countersuit or whatever they can do to, to continue this process. 
While the other hand, the other group is celebrating the victory that has been won. The verdict is handed down and the verdict is not guilty. And you would expect the very next moment Jesus goes free, right? It's not what happens. No, the restraints were not removed. The charges were not dropped. Jesus is not set free. Instead, Jesus is still given a judgment. The story is a story of injustice. Pilate doesn't rule with integrity. Instead, Pilate is interested in saving his own skin, his position, his authority. More than one occasion, he tries to let Jesus go. And you see it here. You're going to see it again next week. Pilate tries to let Jesus go because he finds no guilt in him. There was no reason that Jesus should be put to death. He's not guilty of anything. Not only is he not guilty of the crime for which he's been accused, but Jesus has no guilt in him at all. Paul couldn't find, or rather, Pilate could not find any fault in Jesus. There's nothing in Jesus worthy of discipline, of judgment, much less death. Nonetheless, because of Pilate's personal agenda, he does not choose to do what is just. He does not choose to do what is right. It's what we read The latter part of verse 38, I find no guilt in him. Verse 39, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Puts it in quotes. They know exactly who he's talking about. They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So what happens is Pilate actually develops two different schemes, maybe a third, but two different schemes to try to take the spotlight off of him and the decision off of him and put it back where it belongs on the Jewish authorities and maybe ease his own conscience about punishing an innocent man. Scheme number one, Pilate puts a choice before the people. There's a man by the name of Barabbas. John tells us here that Barabbas was a robber. Mark 15 verse 7 tells us that that Barabbas was among a group of insurrectionists, presumably against Rome. We don't know that for sure, but presumably against Rome. And that he had most certainly committed murder as a part of this group. He's not just a a man who's guilty of petty theft. Essentially, he's a terrorist. Now, there's no way that the people are going to release that kind of a person into society, you would think, right? If you're Pilate, you at least put somebody before them that they would never release, and then they're kind of between a rock and a hard place, and they've got to let Jesus go. This man was locked up. He was a danger to society. He was put away, and he was not going to be dangerous where he was. And if these Jewish leaders were to free Barabbas, well, it's just a death sentence on the whole town. But they do exactly what Pilate expected them not to do. They released him. There was a custom. We don't know where that custom came from, but ultimately it would seem like the governor put this custom out where he would release someone every year at Passover for the people, a prisoner. Remember, there was tension between Rome and Israel. And so this was seemingly a political appeasement, always releasing somebody who was guilty of crimes against Rome so that Israel would stay happy and yet they could maintain the power that they have. Pilate gives them the choice. 
It's a no-brainer, right? Barabbas, a murdering, thieving terrorist, or Jesus, healer, miracle worker, one who actually raised the dead, not put people to death, and now claims to be the king, a good king. Surely they'll choose Jesus. But Pilate underestimates how much the crowd hated Jesus. And can I say to you this morning, it is amazing how much people will choose the evil over the good when pressed. The crowd was willing to ignore what Jesus, or rather what was just, in order to get what they really wanted. The crowd was willing to ignore what was just in order to get what they really wanted. Does that not sound familiar? Is that not similar to what we face in our day? They even chose what was physically dangerous and deadly to themselves over what was right. They couldn't see past their own anger and hatred and fleshly desires to see what was best for them. Their own sin clouded their judgment. Why? Because they had an inflated and distorted sense of what they really deserved. Do you want me to release to you, King of the Jews? They cry out, not this man, but Barabbas. And so the scheme fails. So Pilate punts, tries again. Scheme number two. And that doesn't work. Let me just give Jesus a lesser sentence. They want death. I don't find anything deserving of death. In fact, I don't find any guilt in him at all. But let me at least do something that will satisfy their demands. Now, don't be fooled by the word lesser. Because what Jesus was about to face was anything but lesser. It was brutal. It was a brutal beating. John tells us, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying or mocking, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. And Pilate brings the spectacle that is now Jesus Christ before the crowd so that he has made a public offense. And he says, now you see, isn't this enough? The word flog that we find in the text means to beat severely with a whip. We know in history that there were three types of beatings that a person would experience in Rome, namely a criminal. So three forms of corporal punishment. The first was a simple lashing. Maybe you might see it as smacking a child's hand and telling them no. There was a scolding that took place and and hopefully this would deter crime. The second type was much more painful. They would take a, a whip and put nine tails, nine cords called a cat of nine tails tied in knots and they would begin to beat the prisoner into submission. It's said that they were to beat him no more than 39 times because it was believed that on the 40th lash that the person would die. That's how painful this was. The third and most severe form of punishment was extremely brutal. The victim was beaten with 
rods and then ultimately with another whip that in it was laced bone and pieces of metal and it would strike the back of the criminal and as the whip was pulled away, it would tear just ribbons of flesh away from the back and legs and neck. We're uncertain which of these second two that Jesus received, but based on His fainting and trying to carry His own cross, it was severe beyond words. And as Jesus takes these, this pain and His back is just torn in shreds, they find the largest thorn bush that they can possibly find and put together this crown to put on Jesus' head. Yesterday, I, I cleaned out our flower beds against what I really wanted to do on a Saturday, but cleaned out our flower beds. Um, and there's a plant, I don't know if you're familiar with it, it's called a bougainvillea, if that's even how you say it. It's a plant of the devil, I'm just telling you. It's got thorns like this long, and if you plant it in, the, if you plant it in a pot, all, that's all great, I hear. You plant it in the ground, it grows like nine feet tall. And there is no, I just took a chainsaw to that thing and took it out of the ground and dug it up to be no more, hopefully, in our flower beds. Because you get in a, in, a, in a scripple or whatever with one of these plants, and you're not coming out unscathed, I promise you. It's painful. But it pales. It pales in comparison to what was on Jesus' head. Most believe that it was the date palm. We're, t- we're talking... Thorns, not stickers, wrapped in a circle and pressed onto the brow of Jesus till blood began to run down his face. The pain was not as much of an ordeal as the mockery, as the one who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Hail, King of the Jews, receives the taunting jeers of sinners. When He deserves their praise, they offer only lip service. And this was the lesser sentence. You would think that it would have been enough. So John tells us that Jesus came out wearing that crown and the purple robe, which was supposed to probably one of Pilate's old robes that he'd thrown out. Supposed to make much of this king. And Pilate says, Behold the man. In other words, isn't it enough? And the crowd responds, crucify Him. That's not enough. It's not punishment enough for what He's done. And remember, Jesus is innocent. And He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And they cry out, crucify. You see, the crowd was so blinded by the hardness of their heart to the wickedness of their sin, that they were willing to do the most heinous of acts against the Son of God. They were blinded by the hardness of their heart to the wickedness of their sin. You see, there's a great injustice here. The injustice is that Jesus was innocent. And when the chief priests and the officers saw Him in verse 6, they cried out, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! They gave Him a guilty verdict and a guilty sentence for a man who was yet innocent. We have a law, they say. That's what it's for. 
This is what gets us what we want. We take the law and we formulate it in such a way that we get what we want. So you have to do what we're saying you have to do. Blind. And so the same law, watch it now, the same law that convicted Barabbas of murder and insurrection is the very law that they're now using to free Barabbas from his sentence of insurrection and murder. And they're now accusing Jesus of the same crimes, although he was innocent. Hardened, blinded hearts. They themselves, the irony of it, they themselves were joining Barabbas by committing an unjust killing, a murder. And they weren't even concerned about what was in their best interest. They're turning a murderer, a murderer loose among them. You see how blind sin makes us? What a story of injustice. But there's something deeper here. Because if we understand this story only about, only as what happened to Jesus, then we'll miss all of what's here for us. We see it only as history. As only a story. And how could they do that to Jesus? Even if that's your motivation, you miss what's really here. See, we have to circle back to the question. What if God gave you what you really deserve? You see, when we compare ourselves to the law of God, when we measure our own lives by God's standard, standard of right and wrong, the fact is that you and I are the ones who stand condemned. You and I are the ones who are guilty. We have hated God and hated our neighbor. That makes us guilty of murder just like Barabbas. We have rejected God by nature. We have mocked the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords with every act of disobedience in our lives. We take from Him the crown and replace it with a crown of thorns. And we have been willing to ignore what is just and what is right in order to get what we really want. We've been blinded to the wickedness of our sin by the hardness of our hearts. You see, the temptation in every biblical story is to become judge and jury and to put each person in his place. How dare they do that to Jesus? But the fact is, if we're honest, we are Barabbas. And we are the ones who would be willing to put justice aside, to distort it, to get an inflated sense of what we really think we deserve, the fact is, if we were to correct the injustice of this text, if human justice were served, we are the ones who should be condemned. If human justice were served, we are the ones who should be condemned. By the way, John's set us up for that. If you remember all the way back to John chapter 3, one of our favorite passages in all of Scripture, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, 
but in order that the world through Him might be saved. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But listen to what that latter half of verse 18 says. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In other words, our natural state is to be under condemnation. The universal invitation of John chapter 3 is come and believe the gospel and be saved. But the universal bad news of John chapter 3 is that all of us who have not believed the gospel are under the condemnation of God already. And the rest of John, the rest of John is bent toward unearthing real unbelief. To even take those things that masquerade as belief and to call them into question and to go, that's not faith. When you get to the end of John, even the disciples are nowhere to be found. Begin to wonder, is there any hope for humanity at all? We are all Barabbas standing under the condemnation of God's law, deserving His judgment. That's where we land by nature. I told you at the beginning that this is a story of injustice. The guilty are set free while the innocent is charged and convicted and punished and even killed unjustly. And again, in any modern sense of the idea, this would be the greatest societal atrocity that perhaps we have ever seen. But the hate crime that we're witnessing has a much deeper significance than you might initially see. Because what is so violent and so wicked and so ugly actually is the best news you could hear this morning. Why? Because if I'm Barabbas, don't miss this, if I'm Barabbas, then in the Gospel, I am set free because Jesus was condemned in my place. Do you see this? The good news of this story is that the very injustice against Jesus at the cross is the very justice of God that brought about my salvation. In the same act, the injustice done to Jesus satisfies the justice of God and the wrath of God against my sin and against me as a sinner, and I'm set free. And I'm not set free like Barabbas in the sense that I'm free to now be ravaged by sin and to live a life that only serves myself and that lives a life of violence. Rather, I'm set free and born again through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what John 3 says. No longer to love my sin, but to love God. It's no longer me doing what destroys me, but rather what God has intended for my good. I want to do justice. I want to love mercy. I want to walk humbly with God. Why? Because I'm no longer blinded by my sin. I'm no longer desiring the things that would be opposite of God. I'm desiring Him. My heart is no longer hardened against God. The law of God is written on my heart so that I desire to please Him. I love Him. I love my neighbor and thereby obey Christ. That's the picture. I was once Barabbas living condemned under the law of God. And there was a verdict of guilt on my head and a sentence of death. But Jesus died in my place. And through faith in Jesus, I, you, we are free.
the gospel. Second Corinthians chapter five. Paul said to us, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. And he said, we implore you, we plead with you, we beg with beg of you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. What is it that God did in order to reconcile sinners to Himself? Verse 21, For our sake He made Him, that is Jesus, to be sin, to be guilty, to bear the weight of the verdict, to be condemned in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. It's the Gospel. Paul would write to the Romans in chapter 5 and verse 6 that while we were still, re- still weak at the time, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, the Barabbases of the world. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a, for a good person one would even dare to die. You wouldn't put your kids on the altar for the sake of a criminal, but this is what God did. But God shows His love for us. And that while we were still sinners, while we were still condemned, while we're still under the penalty of the law, Christ died for us in our place. It's the great exchange. Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. This is the Gospel. And it's because of the cross that we, if you are in Christ this morning, that we are no longer condemned. I love this. We don't know what happened to Barabbas. Maybe Barabbas became a Christian. We don't know. But we do know that for those who become a Christian, we are no longer condemned. We're no longer under the condemnation of God. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set, you free from, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. If you are in Christ this morning, all of your sin is forgiven and you no longer bear the condemnation of the law you no longer bear the condemnation of your sin you have been set free because Christ took your place this is good news in the gospel I'm free because Jesus was condemned in my place and it is the greatest act of injustice in human history and yet at the very same time the greatest act of justice the only one that could fulfill God's righteous requirement in order that I might be saved So what does it set us free from? Just exactly what, what way are we free? What does this look like for the person who's come to know Jesus as Savior? Well, simply by looking at Pilate and the Sanhedrin, we see some things in the opposite way that are true for those who are in Christ. They're not in Christ. Maybe you're here this morning. You don't know Jesus. This would be true of you were you to come to Christ. Christian, this is true of you because of Jesus. Four things quickly. Number one, in Christ, we are set free from the guilt of our sin. In Christ, we are set free from the guilt of our sin. 
very quickly, just see first century and see us. First century Barabbas. Legally declared not guilty. Scandalous, isn't it? That a murderer would go free because he's been taken placed by this man. That makes no sense. That's not justice. We don't see that as justice. But he's declared legally innocent. And whatever happened with the story of Barabbas later, what we see is in the Gospel, you and I as sinners, as murdering, thieving, insurrectionists against God, we are declared legally innocent. The word in theology is justified. Some have pinned that to say, just as if I'd never sinned. That's the idea that the entire record against us, all record of wrongdoing is erased and we are right in a legal standing before God. There is no more guilt of sin. This is why Romans 8.1 can be true. That we have been set free from that condemnation. We're no longer under the law. And so in Christ, the guilt is gone. The sin has been forgiven. Secondly, in Christ, we are set free from the destruction of our sin. The destruction of our sin. So 18, verse 40, they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. And then we're reminded just casually, Gently, Barabbas was a robber. Don't forget the kind of life that Barabbas lived. And they ignored not only the cost that he had endured, but the own, their own cost to their society of letting this man go. It's amazing to me how much we look at the world around us and we go, how could they do such a thing? Can they not see how much it's costing them. If we're honest and we took a good look in the mirror, how many choices have we made without considering the cost? Why? Because we're blind. Sin blinds us. And we are willing to endure the destruction of our sin in order to gratify the desires of our flesh. But Christ sets us free from that. He sets us free from the destruction of our sin. It does not mean that every sinful choice we've ever made and the consequences that come along with it, some of the destruction that we have to endure in our life because of the choices we made, doesn't mean that goes away immediately. But it means that, that the destruction that once was our life, just this trail of tears, is no longer. We're saved from just simply choices to sin against God and the destruction that it naturally brings to our lives. Third, not only are we set free from the destruction and the guilt of our sin, we are set free from the blindness of our sin. The blindness. To look upon Jesus. Those moments, verses 1-5, through chapter 19, those moments of looking upon Jesus you would think with a broken heart, right? Like, how could they look at this and laugh? We could put this on the scale of how could things like 
the Holocaust happened. How can they do that with pleasure? The abortions that have happened in our nation, you could look at it and go, how could they do that with pleasure? Some of the just heinous acts that happen in humanity, how can anyone look at this with pleasure? The reason is because sin blinds us and you would be amazed at how much you would be willing to do apart from the grace of God and the indwelling Spirit of God and look at it with pleasure. Why does this happen in the world? Because sin blinds sinners. and We are as blind as they were I often like to wish that if I was in the first century in Rome, that I would have been one of the ones defending Jesus. And yet, then again, I wonder if I would have been in Peter's place cutting off the ear of the soldier or denying him or even one of the ones yelling crucify. You can never measure how much blindness sin brings. This is why it is so dangerous. And Christ takes off the blinders from our eyes so that we are able to see. This morning in Connect Group Bible study, we, we were studying a passage of Scripture and seeing all these connections in the life of Elisha to Jesus and just watching this. And it's so cool to watch everyone in the room because all of these connections they're seeing in God's Word that perhaps they've never seen before. Those connections and seeing that and knowing truth is made possible because their eyes have been opened to the truth of God's Word. Been born again. This, this only happens because of what Jesus has done. And He sets us free. And the fourth thing that we see that we're set free from is the penalty of our sin. You might... See that in the same way of the guilt, this legal description of Barabbas. The legal burden on our lives to be unjustified and unright before God. Unrighteous and holy. But that legal standing demands a verdict. Our legal standing before God demands a penalty from God. Because our sin is not just in a vacuum, it's against someone. It's against God Almighty. Barabbas was sentenced to die. Verses 6 and 7, we see it. He was not going to escape the law. They weren't going to escape the law. No one was going to escape the law. And we, you and I, cannot escape the law of God. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Spiritual death. And it's not just the destruction of this life. And it's not just a life of blindness. And not just a a life of having to bear guilt before God. It is an ultimate life of living forever separated from God in hell. This is the penalty of our sin. But when Jesus was condemned, His condemnation satisfied the penalty of our sin. And when He died, His blood made it possible for you and I to be restored to God forever. This is the good news of the story. Jesus is condemned in our place. And we are set free. So let me ask you. What if What if God gave you 
what you really, really deserve. With every head bowed, every eye closed. If God gave us what we really deserve, it would be all of the things that Jesus died to save us from. This morning, the good news is that you don't have to face any of those things. If you are here this morning and you are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for you. For what the law could not do, God did by sending His only Son. By His blood, He has justified you. He has forgiven you. You have been born again, given a new heart. And come to know and love the things of God and God Himself. And you will spend, if you're in Christ this morning, you will spend forever with God in eternity. It's good news that Christ was condemned in your place. Some of you here this morning, you may be without Christ. You are Barabbas at this very moment. And today you need to be set free. The Bible says that if you would put your faith and trust in Jesus today, that He'll save you. And the one whom the Son makes free is free indeed. So in just a few moments, what I'd like to ask for you to do, if that's you this morning, never given your life to Jesus, I want to invite you when we stand, that you step out of the place where you're standing. Walk down this aisle. Today, Pastor, I want to be free. I need to be saved. I want to know Jesus. Will you help me? And I'll help you. I'll lead you to the only one who can save you. The Son of the living God. Others of you in this room, there's other decisions that may need to be made. Maybe you just got something to pray for and you want to spend some time here at this altar. Take somebody with you. Now's the time. Spend time with the Lord and obeying Him and getting things right in your life. With every head bowed, every eye closed, would you stand with me all across the room? God, would you move in this place and lead us to obey your will and your word, your voice. We listen now as your sheep. And we ask that you would lead us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You come this morning. As Dylan leads us. You've been listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. We also invite you to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for Southwide BC. Thank you for listening, and may you continue to worship, connect, grow, and multiply as you follow Jesus Christ.